the excitement around artificial intelligence comes from the fact that the machines now don't need humans' explicit instructions, but rather they look at past historical patterns based on historical data and learn how to do those things themselves. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hi, everyone. I am Rosa Vandenbaint, Director of Stewardship in Responsible Investment at BMO Global Asset Management. And today we're joined by Ibrahim Bagheri, Professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly known as Ryerson. He is the Canadian Research Chair for Social Information Retrieval and the NZERC Industrial Research Chair in Social Media Analytics. He is also the director of the NZERC CREATE program on the responsible development of AI and the recipient of several awards, including the NZERC Synergy Award for Innovation in Outstanding Industry and Academia Collaboration. We will be discussing artificial intelligence today. From positive use cases to ethics to risks, this two-part series will help listeners understand the inner workings of AI today. Ibrahim, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much, Rosa, for having me. It's a pleasure. So maybe we can start with some basics because artificial intelligence, as I know from you, has been around for quite a long time already. But it seems like in the last few years, people have come to equate it a little bit more with natural language processing tools like ChatGPT. Can we start by briefly discussing what is AI and what would be the difference, for example, between an algorithm and artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's a great question. Algorithms have been around for many, many decades, if not centuries. And essentially what algorithms are, are structured workflows of how we accomplish things. So you can think of algorithms as, as workflows. But within computers, what algorithms are, are a set of instructions that the computer can follow efficiently. So if you write a program, you're essentially coding a set of instructions for the computer to do, and we call those algorithms. For more complex tasks, we need more efficient algorithms. So people within algorithm design in computer science have been working on designing more efficient algorithms for certain problems. Now, you can think of AI also as a set of algorithms, but what we are talking about AI right now is essentially statistical machine learning. And the expectation of statistical machine learning is for the machine to learn to create algorithms on its own. So essentially, you want the machine to learn to do things without you explicitly instructing the machine to do those things. So the excitement around artificial intelligence comes from the fact that the machines now don't need humans' explicit instructions, but rather they look at past historical patterns based on historical data 
and learn how to do those things themselves. So if you have to distinguish between an AI and an algorithm is that AI will help you as humans to learn the algorithms based on observations from data. That's really interesting. And I think good to know in this day and age, especially what the difference is. And I think, you know, it's been in the news a lot. Artificial intelligence seemingly has the potential to create a lot of efficiencies, like you said, help us solve problems. But it has also been likened to a potential threat to humanity. We've heard people say, oh, it might have potential impacts similar to global pandemics or nuclear war. So what exactly is the impact and, and what are we dealing with? Mm -hmm. Is it this dangerous or what are your thoughts about that? Right. I think what people are fearful of is the development of autonomous decision-making systems, not necessarily AI, because development of these autonomous decision-making systems will allow technology to act independently whether it's based on AI or based on some other technology. I think the fear comes from the control moving away from humans to some other type of being, which does not necessarily share the same value system as humans. Just as a hypothetical example, think of we as humans rely on oxygen for livelihood. If you have a robot that works on fossil fuel or electricity, they don't need oxygen. Therefore, it is not to their best interest to follow the same sustainable development goals that we follow in terms of preserving the environment and things like that. They may start optimizing for other objectives, which is not to the best uh, interest of the humans. So I think it's more about the development of these autonomous decision-making systems, and obviously AI facilitates that process. But I think before we reach the stage where we're fearful for autonomous decision-making systems, I think there are certain preconditions that we need to think about. And one of those preconditions is the need for these AI systems to have some form of self-consciousness. So for us to see whether we're at a point where we could have AI systems that have self-consciousness, we should understand how these AI systems actually operate. So the I think the public fascination with, with AI comes from generative AI, things like large language models or image generation technology or, or video generation technology. We call these broadly generative AI technology. And I think the fascination, the public fascination comes from these algorithms. And if we maybe talk a little bit about how these technologies work, it would help us kind of understand whether there is some consciousness involved with these algorithms, or are we actually at a point where these algorithms may start making autonomous decisions? So just to give you an example of how these large language models work, so essentially when you interact with a language model like ChatGPT, what essentially happens is that this algorithm, this AI system is trying to complete the prompt that you have you've given the algorithm. So if you start by typing in a certain question, or you write a sentence, what the algorithm, the AI generative AI system will try to do is it will try to predict the next word that should come after it. And then once it's generated a word, try to decide what's the next word and what's the next word. So essentially it's a probabilistic model that says, 
I've read all of the sentences in the world on the internet, off books, magazines, Wikipedia, and I've seen under what conditions do certain terms come after each other. So it, it learns this probability distribution over words. And so when you ask a question, it's probably seen that question or a very similar question or a similar type of sequence of terms before, and it knows what types of sentences or words need to come after it. So when we think about these language models, we should know that these are probability distributions over terms, but they're very realistic because the algorithm, the AI system has seen a lot of it, right? So that is why a lot of the responses you see from a language model are very realistic because they've been trained on a huge amount of data. So what I want to get at is while there is a sense that these algorithms have consciousness, but in fact, they're very far from, from that stage. And there are certain other things that we should be worried about, and we can talk about those during our conversation. That's, yeah, that's really helpful. And I think also, you know, what you were saying about the actual technology behind these large language models, it seems like, you know, they're capable of reproducing what already exists. But that might also mean that they're capable of reproducing information that might not be correct that is out there. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the impact currently or, or perceived future impact of misinformation and how AI contributes or doesn't contribute to misinformation. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. I think generative AI actually brought AI technology to the forefront, to the public, but that doesn't mean that AI wasn't used before. So AI has been used for, for many, many years now, specifically in the information sphere. So for instance, you go on Amazon, you do purchases, you go on Google, you do searches, you go on certain news outlets, you read news. All of these are somehow powered by some AI decision-making tool behind the scenes. So for instance, you go on an e-commerce platform, they will try to maximize based on an AI systems, the likelihood of your purchase. So they would like to make recommendations to you so that you buy certain product. So AI has been in the information ecosystem for a long time. So I, I think when you think about the dangers of AI, we should think about how AI has already been integrated within the information ecosystem. Think about search engines and the point that you made about misinformation. So search engines, the way they work is we call them, they operate based on relevance. So a user searches for a certain term, the search engine will try to find the web pages or content that are most relevant to the user's query. But over the years, the function of a search engine has changed a bit so that search engines are also advertising platforms. So the search engine wants you to be happy, so they give you relevant content. But from out of all the relevant content they can show you, they show you the ones that you're most likely to click on and has the highest advertising value for the search engine. And so put that in the context of the amount of internet traffic that goes through a search engine, over 95% of access to the internet starts with a search. Even if I know what I'm looking for, I still search for it and I find the page through the search engine and then I click on it and go to that page instead of typing the full URL. 
So pretty much most of the experiences we have with the internet goes through the search engine. And think about just simple changes of the orders of the links we get from the search engine actually impacts our decisions, the actions we take, the products we purchase, maybe the books we read, or maybe even our beliefs. So now this is very powerful. Right? So if, if I don't know anything about COVID and I just heard about COVID, it's coming up. The first set of information that I read are the things that are, I most likely believe in. And that's what search engine gives me. Right? The issue is that the search engine is not only trying to give me the factual information, because it's very hard to determine what's factual and what's not. It's trying to optimize for relevance and also optimize for advertising revenue. And this opens up this space for misinformation campaigns uh, to appear. Because if you have advertising money behind content that's being pushed through these information platforms, such as social networks and, and search engines, then people can be funding certain information campaigns. And as long as there's ad revenue going behind it, the search engine or the social network platform will optimize based on AI systems. So this could disrupt democracies, create lack of trust in you know, democratic institutions, and so on. It can also create these issues with privacy because search engines will need to track or social networks track your behavior on networks so they can personalize information access. So I think what we need to be thinking about, and this is my personal opinion, that AI systems have been deployed at scale in most, if not all, of our information platforms, uh, digital information platforms. They're collecting our personal data. They're personalizing our access to information on every single second. And that shapes who we are because we read online, we, we access information, we make judgments based on information that's provided to us. And all of that is shaped by the information that's being customized. So... Without us knowing, these information platforms driven by AI systems are actually shaping our beliefs, our judgments, and so on. And I think that's where we should really be focusing on at this point, because AI is already here. It's not something futuristic. It's shaping the fabric of our our lives. I have certainly been guilty myself of saying, oh, the algorithm really seems to know me when it (laughs) recommends a certain product or, or service. And, and kind of making light of it. But it is it is a really interesting question of, you know, we're all, it's very hard not to live online. A lot of our data is collected. There's issues around, like you mentioned, maybe data privacy, uh, consent, and what consent means. And perhaps also interesting, we're recording this during a time when a large part of Hollywood writers and actors are on strike there are negotiations about consent for, for scripts or image likeness to be used to train artificial intelligence and to create maybe future AI-based art. So maybe we can talk a little bit about ownership, data ownership, intellectual property, even how it might impact the future of work and employment in certain sectors. Can you speak a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you touch on a very relevant topic with the Hollywood movement. There was recently two authors who filed a lawsuit against uh, OpenAI, claiming that ChatGPT had actually read their copyrighted books and used it. And those books were should have been protected by copyright. 
the way they believe ChatGPT was trained on them was that they think the summaries that ChatGPT generates for their books is very accurate. And these authors believe that there would have been no other way for ChatGPT to be able to generate such accurate summarizations of their books unless it was trained on the book. So it's a fascinating time from the perspective of data ownership, intellectual property. And I think the legal system now has to clarify what is derivative work under intellectual property law. And it really depends on which jurisdiction you're in, but it's the interpretation of what is fair use doctrine. So fair use doctrine says if you have copyrighted material, still under some use cases, you can use the material without the owner's permission. So for instance, if you're doing news reporting, if you're doing in-classroom teaching, if you're doing research, you don't need to go and ask for permission to use the copyrighted material in these limited cases. And some governments actually believe that the first use doctrine actually applies to text and data mining. For instance, the UK government actually supports this idea that you could use copyrighted material to do data mining and, and text mining and so on. So it's, it's really not clear whether technology like ChatGPT and, and Stable Diffusion and Imagine and all these different generative AI models should be training on copyrighted material or not. And I think that's something that we will be hearing a lot from. But one, one point I want to make is other than the issue of the intellectual property belonging to individuals, there is this more important and I think critical issue for us as human race, and that is creativity. So most of the generative AI technology replicates with some degree of freedom content that it's been trained on. So it will read books, it will summarize them, it can write for you a new novel or paint a new picture and so on. But these are all inspired based on historical data that they've seen. But what artists and, and scholars and authors do is beyond reading other people's work and generating similar content. They have this concept of creativity and innovation, which is their work, right? And so what will happen is if you allow generative AI to take over the landscape of scholarship, for instance, or artistry, what will happen is that artists and scholars and other individuals will probably face financial hardship and it will become a less attractive endeavor for people to engage in writing and painting and creating art and so on. And so there will be a vacuum within that space of creativity, right? which will eventually disadvantage the humanity overall because you don't have people going in that direction. You will have algorithms replicating the same things over and over again. So I think there's two angles to this issue of intellectual property. One is immediately there's content that's out there, belongs to people. What is our position on that? Because that directly impacts those people. There's this bigger issue of the impact on the humanity as a whole uh, what happens if you don't protect people's intellectual property, which will impact their livelihood and eventually will, will impact innovation and creativity overall? So maybe before we wrap up part one of our two-part series, 
can we discuss the positive applications of AI on sustainability outcomes? For those of us working on climate issues, we are seeing some positive potential for AI to help address climate change, not solving climate change, but just through better measurement of emissions, suggestions of how to better reduce emissions, improving things like hazard projections of climate change effects, such as sea level rises or extreme events like droughts or hurricanes or wildfires, and also the ability to help maybe with large-scale climate modeling and scenario analysis. However, this would take, as with anything, a lot of education and access to this type of technology. What are your thoughts on the positive applications of AI, and particularly maybe on sustainability outcomes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, as you know, I'm a computer scientist by training. So development of AI is, is my bread and butter. And I hope my comments so far hasn't, is not construed as being negative towards AI. I'm, I'm a fan of developing AI. And I hear your points about AI having a lot of positive impacts. We've already seen, as you mentioned, applications of AI within various areas. And I'm hoping to discuss all of those with you in the second part. What I want to point out is this methodological considerations of, of how to develop AI and where we should be developing AI and when and for what purpose, right? So one way you, you can think about technology development is we could say as engineers or as computer scientists, we say technology is the goal, technology development is the goal. We have the possibility of advancing it, therefore we will do it, right? So that is one way to do it. And if you take this approach, this could lead you to very creative technology development streams it will impact you know, large numbers of people, a lot of industries, revolutionize future of work and, and so on. But that's one way of going about it. And that's pretty much what we've been doing so far. The downside of this is that now you will see systematic prejudices being exasperated by, by AI in various domains. The other alternative pathway we could take is we could say, you know, the core of our belief system is the value of the society the value of the environment we live in, the value of humanity, and therefore we care for our societal, environmental, and human humanity challenges that we face. Those are the core things that we, we care about. And we are here to, to solve those problems. Now, AI is also a, a tool that we could use to solve some of those problems. So it's a different perspective where we put one or the other at the center and then we decide what we want to to develop. And so if you think about the sustainability development goals that that you mentioned, you put the human at the center, the social issues, the, the environmental challenges, those are the core things we care about. Now, you identify major pain points that you face with those SDGs, right? Now you you think about how am I going to solve those problems? The way you would solve those, I think, is by participatory design. You involve the stakeholders that are impacted. Every single person matters. You talk to the different communities. You talk to the people who will be involved, the different industries, NGOs, governments, subpopulations. And you identify what is the the process you would take. And then in this bigger ecosystem of problem solving, AI could also be one of the tools that you use 
to make things more efficient, for instance, or you, know, you look at large amounts of data to help you make decisions and so on. This way, you make sure that those systematic prejudices that could be created by AI are avoided. Right? So you thoughtfully engage with the problem. There's a lot of discussion now in, you know, around different communities on how can we maximize the adoption of AI? And I think that's the wrong question to be asking because there's no inherent value in the adoption of AI itself unless AI is actually being used for some good, right? So are we looking at the right problems? Are we, looking, are we engaging many, many different stakeholders, many different people who are impacted? And are we considering their specific circumstances while developing AI? But, but AI, if we adopt this participatory design approach, I think AI has a lot to offer in that process as one component, but not the major playing component of this process. Right. So it's really looking at what are our problems? How can we solve for them? And how can AI be a tool as part of that process rather than leading with what could I, AI do for us? Let's just see and find out and throw a whole bunch at the wall to, and see what sticks. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Ibrahim. Be sure, everyone, to join us for our next episode as we dive deeper into the social implications of artificial intelligence. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. For BMO Disclosures, please visit bmocm.com slash podcast slash disclaimer.